0: We have film tonight from where air raids against Laos often start, aboard an aircraft carrier. Morton Dean reports from the USS Kitty Hawk in the Gulf of Tonkin.
1: I noticed in the corner, in this little glass office, there was Mr. Cronkite. And he saw me coming and I poked in and said, hey Walter, what are you doing? These soft-spoken
0: young men fly some of the most hazardous missions of the war members of two medical evacuation teams, known as dust-off crews, assigned to Hawk Hill, a dusty, sun-baked army post 350 miles north of Saigon.
2: Hi, I'm Russ Mason. Over the next two News Knowledge episodes, we'll continue to hear portions of my recent phone conversations with former CBS and ABC newsman Morton Dean. As promised, we'll hear more from him about his early adventures in Cuba as a young radio reporter, as well as that time he helped capture a killer in Boston. And we'll talk with him some more about his recent documentary American Medevac, which tells the story of his efforts to reunite Vietnam Medevac pilots with some of the wounded soldiers they rescued. And he has several other interesting stories and insights to share, gleaned from decades as a journalist in front of television cameras and radio microphones, often reporting from locations associated with the most significant historical events of the past 60 years. We've got plenty of ground to cover, so let's get started with the missing chapter to a story that he told in our previous episode, which left off with him under arrest in Cuba, when, as a young radio reporter, he tried to attend a rally that included a speech by Che Guevara
1: i was absolutely delighted while sitting there to hear che Guevara introduced and he got up and spoke and i was holding my tape recorder there while seated in the sixth or eighth row and with my microphone up and the the people i was with the folks from california the the husband said hey Mort, uh, those guys want you and i looked and in the aisle were a few people in suits and they were beckoning me and uh, I was wise enough to know I didn't want to go and I said no that's that's okay just forget them and then uh, my new friend from California said they're coming to get you and a couple of them were moving along the row in front of me and uh, one guy was coming along my row, and they convinced me that I ought to go along with them, and uh, walked up to the front, uh, up near the stage, uh, Chase still talking, and took a left and then a right backstage, and there were a bunch of guys with guns there. And uh, they said, you're coming with us, and and I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. (laughs) They said, come, Senor, come. And I said, no, and I must have seen a movie where somebody in one of these countries where the United States no longer had relations said, I want the Swedish ambassador. So I said, I said, I said, I, I, I want to call the Swedish embassy. And, uh, I said, no, no, no. I said, you come. And, and uh, the, the guys pushed me out the side door and there were a number of cars there uh, with uh, dark windows and, and uh, they said, "Get in." I said, "Look, I uh, I really want to talk to the Swedish Embassy." <laughs> and pushed me in. A couple of guys jumped with their guns into the jump seats, and we went rolling off to what was called a G2 prison. I think they called it. There was an old a mansion in one of the old best sections of Cuba that had been taken over, and the jailhouse was. Two or three car garage in back that had some bars on the windows. And I was taken back there, and there were, I think, 19 or 20 people there, I counted, and not many of them spoke English, but a couple did, and my Spanish was virtually non existent. And then um, the next morning, uh, I was called out, and they brought me up for fingerprinting. And there was an American woman there waiting to be fingerprinted. And it was a woman from Look Magazine. And I am the uh, proud owner of a copy, as I turn in my office here, of, uh, of an old Look Magazine which has the story of our captivity. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. And there's a picture of Fidel, and it was called Our Woman in Havana. It was her story, but, but she didn't mention me. And uh, we, we got out later that day. So that was it. That was my uh, time in a, in a jail in Havana.
2: The woman who was also fingerprinted and released that day was the journalist Laura Bergquist, who was in her 40s at that time. The first-hand knowledge that she'd acquired about Fidel Castro and Che Guevara was sought out by John F. Kennedy after he became president, and eventually she became a senior editor at Look Magazine. Meanwhile, Morton Dean's career aspirations led him to WCBS-TV in New York in 1964, and then to the CBS network itself in 67. Here are some of his recollections regarding Mike Wallace and Walter Cronkite during that period of his career.
1: I had been working as a news reporter at a couple of tiny radio stations outside of New York in Westchester County and always eager to, to get my resume looking better. I heard through a mutual friend that this guy by the name of Mike Wallace, who was pretty famous at the time, even though he wasn't at CBS yet, was hiring people to pre- Interview guests for this interview show. It might have been Mike Wallace at large. That was one of the shows he had, but I'm not positive. And I went down one afternoon after work in the in the suburbs, and I met this producer, and he said, "Yeah, well, here's what we do. Uh, you you go out and you set up an interview with a guy that we're, Mike's going to interview, and uh, you write up uh, you ask him questions." And you keep track of the answers. Then you write up the questions and the answers. So during the broadcast, Mike can look. And if he gets a bad answer from someone, he can say, yeah, but uh, you told, uh, you're quoted as saying. And uh, he said, do you get that? And I said, absolutely. And he said, yeah, okay. And you get 50 bucks a show. And I said, All oh, right, okay. So I went and did an interview with The guy who was the head of the Teamsters Union in New York by the name of Mike Quill. He was really quite a character and a tough guy. And I uh, did what I thought was a pretty good job with the questions and the answers. And uh, I got called from the show and come see the producer. And I thought I was going to be embraced. And the uh, producer came out and he said, Mike hates what you've done. And I thought, oh, I will never be a reporter. I'll I'll never make it. And I said, really? Why? And he, I cannot use the words he used, but he said to me, when you interview someone, you've got to grab them by the you-know-what and twist them. You've got to grab the guy's throat and threaten to rip his throat apart. You've got to gouge his eyes out. That's what you do in an interview. And I thought, well, all right. Can I try this again? He said, yeah. So I went home and called Mike Will again and looked at my notes from before, and I wrote up a, another closed broadcast. I, I showed up with it, and I, uh, the producer said, well, Mike's in his office. Let me show this to Mike. And it was one of those great moments in the history of journalism. <laughs> I heard about a half hour, 40 minutes later, hey, kid. And I, I, I looked and there was Mr. Wallace. And he just gave me the AOK okay sign, you know, with his thumb and finger and walked away. And I thought, oh, my career has been saved. And I remember Mike. Mike said one thing once uh, when I was about to head to Vietnam, and it was late in the war, and so many people had already been there and done some great reporting. And Mike said, uh, "Hey, so you're finally going to the war, huh?" And I said, "Yes, I am." I said, "But I, you know, worried. I mean, it's it's been years, and I'm worried about all the stories that have already been done." And and Mike said, "Kid, you can do any story." every six months as long as you do it well and i thought that's it don't worry that you might have seen a story something like the one you're about to do just do it better but he was uh he he was a you know a, a tough guy and but but uh i think a a great journalist i mean gee he was the best
2: yeah then how about Walter Cronkite, who I think many people still think of as sort of the Abraham Lincoln of broadcast journalism?
1: Yeah, I I loved Walter Cronkite. I mean, he he was, I mean, he wasn't wasn't an easy guy about news stories. You know, he 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 never and he never, to my knowledge, or never to me, made a demand that a story had to be written a certain way or. Uh, That that wasn't who he was, and I knew that some of the senior correspondents and other anchor people had had differences with him, but, you know, that's the kind of competition that exists everywhere, but he was always quite good to me. But the story I remember about Walter Cronkite, I was relatively new at the network. I had just moved up from from the the local news stations, WCBS-TV. And uh, I had just come in from covering a, a, a campaign somewhere. And it was, uh, uh, I don't know, probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I walked out of the newsroom and into the area we used to call it the fishbowl. And that was where the Cronkite news uh, was broadcast. Very, very little room, you know, not... Uh, Not uh, indicative at all of what you see now when you see news studios. And it was dark, and I was going to take a shortcut to go to the John. And uh, (laughs) I noticed in the corner in this little glass office, there was Mr. Cronkite. So I went over, and, and he saw me coming, and I poked in and said, Hey, Walter, what are you doing? And he had all this paperwork and notebooks on his small desk. And he said, well, you know, we uh, have got a primary coming up in uh, in a couple of days. And and I'm just doing my homework. Uh, You know, I just, I don't know enough. And I thought, this is wonderful. Here is the great Walter Cronkite doing his homework at 1030 at night, all by himself, Worried that he doesn't know enough about
2: the story. Yeah. Good lesson, hmm? Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Yeah. In February of 1968, not long after Morton Dean was hired by CBS, Walter Cronkite delivered his famous commentary on the Vietnam War.
0: It is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Robert guy. Good night. But in
2: November, Richard Nixon was elected, and the war continued unabated into the early 70s, spreading as well into Laos and Cambodia. In our previous episode, we heard Dean talk about being pressured by his assignment editor to agree to go to Vietnam and in late December, 1970, he finally arrived there to report on the war for CBS. Throughout our recent phone conversation, he shared several stories that highlighted some of the dilemmas he faced in deciding what to include or exclude from his reports over the years, including this one during his time in Vietnam.
1: This has been on my mind a lot, and it's been many years. In Vietnam, Greg Cook and I, my cameraman, and Mr. An, my sound man, uh, we flew out, landed on an aircraft carrier, and visited an aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin. And I'd never landed on an aircraft carrier or taken off from one, so but this was going to be great fun. And this ship, the pilots on this ship were engaged in going over into the skies over North Vietnam and, 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 and attacking. So it, it was a pretty good, pretty good story. And while we were being shown around the, the carrier, we were brought into, uh, I, I don't think they called it a talk, but maybe they did a tactical operations command, a lot of screens, a lot of speakers, a lot of people. And as we were standing there, there was a plaintive beep oh I don't know every 30 seconds 20 seconds I don't recall but just a beep and I uh, I said what is that and the guy one of the guys showing us around the carrier was one of the uh, intelligence officers he was I guess making sure that we didn't go anywhere we were not supposed to go and he said he said. Well, that's uh, a signal from, a, from a, a downed aircraft, from a downed pilot, American pilot. Really? And he said, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's It's been sounding for ever since the plane was lost, which was a, a day before or something like that, two days before. And he said, we've tried to find it, but, but we haven't been able to, to locate it, find the locator. And um, I thought, well, and and he said a few other things about, about, about the locator. And I thought, "Gee, if I do this story, then if there's somebody listening who for the North Vietnamese, he might find out something about this missing pilot that that he might still be out there. And I I just automatically excluded it from the piece. And I, um, I didn't ask the, really well. I wasn't asked to do that, but I just thought, yeah, you know, it's, it's a good story without that. I thought about this a lot, thought that, you know, I, I could have had a great story just listening to that deep and watching planes take off and return on the carrier. And, um, you know, maybe in this case, I did wrong. Maybe I should have reported it, but I just didn't. And I wish I could be a little more articulate about this, but it's been a conflict in my head for for some, some time. And uh, every now and then you hear things that you, you make a judgment. No, I don't think I want to do that.
2: As it turns out, there's actually a bit more to this story. But first, let's listen to a portion of Dean's report as it aired on the CBS Evening News on March 28, 1971.
0: The round trip over Laos, South Vietnam, or North Vietnam usually takes a pilot from the Kitty Hawk less than an hour and 45 minutes. Time enough to locate his target, to attack it, and to zip back onto the carrier deck before he runs out of fuel. Now you think about the landing, or you get yourself prepared for it, because that's the toughest part of the mission. People don't mind getting shot at; they mind uh, landing back aboard the ship. It's it's very demanding. Within minutes after landing, most pilots can be found searching out their mailboxes. There is nothing more satisfying after a hot flight than finding a letter from home, the right kind of letter. I got one letter, one two cards actually. One from a buddy and one from an old landlady, and nothing from my girl. There is a very businesslike attitude on board the Kitty Hawk. And it takes something extraordinary to break the mood. You've got two carriers out here on station on a busy day. On occasion, does a pilot somehow, sometimes land on the wrong carrier. (laughs) uh, Yeah, (laughs) not very often. uh, It's happened. It's been known to happen. People, you know, are very close to you. (laughs) Maybe you can see me blushing, but uh, well, that yeah, it's happened before, uh, and I did it once. So I'm gonna. It's, there's been a lot of guys do it, but uh, I'm not gonna be the first to do it twice. I'll tell you that. Morton right. Dean, CBS News, aboard the USS Kitty Hawk in the Gulf of Tonkin.
2: Did you ever find out whether that pilot was captured or?
1: No, but chapter two. Long time after, maybe a couple of years. I was walking on Fifth Avenue in New York City, and uh, crowded as it always is. And I heard somebody call my name, and I stopped, and it was somebody across the avenue waving, and it was the intelligence officer, and he introduced himself, and and, and we we talked, and and I did ask. I said, "Remember that beat?" He went, "Oh yeah, yeah." He said, "You know." I thought about that. I probably shouldn't have told you what it was. And, and I said, well, I said, I never did anything with it, but did you ever find the guy? And he said, well, I, I don't really know. I don't think so. But, uh, you know, o- often if a, a guy, a pilot was captured and there was that beeper by then the enemy knew what, a, what they were. Uh, they, they would just use it as a way to lure American planes in.
2: So, uh,
1: so who knows, maybe I did a good thing, I'm not sure.
2: It was two months prior to his report from the USS Kitty Hawk that Dean, along with his cameraman Greg Cook and soundman man Nguyen An, filmed and reported on a rescue mission, known as a dust-off flight, that brought back three wounded GIs to the first aid station at Hill 29 also known as Hawk Hill. In our previous News Knowledge episode, we were introduced to the current documentary based on that report all those years ago in Vietnam. It's called American Medevac, and here's some more of our conversation about it. You know, I watched the documentary uh, again over the weekend, and I was really struck by the importance of those dust-off rescue missions To everybody involved, the crews themselves, you know, uh, Dan Stevenson and uh, Bob Brady, I think they both talk about how they chose that as what they would do uh, during their time in Vietnam, uh, specifically because they recognized that they would be helping soldiers that were uh, out there in the bush, you know, and had been wounded and needed to be rescued. And of course, the soldiers themselves, the three that you found and, and reunited, they were very appreciative of the dust off crews. And I just uh, think that that really makes perfect sense as uh, something to focus on.
1: Well, yes, I, I appreciate what you're saying. When um, we began to shoot the documentary, i uh, I had a friend who was an executive with uh, the Smithsonian. He had said, "Let me put you in touch with one of our uh, our magazines, Smithsonian Magazine's Air and Space." And um, I said, oh, "That would be great." So I went and met the the, the uh, executive editor, and she asked if I could do a piece, a couple of thousand words. And I said, "I'd be honored to do that." And I was at a meeting of this group called the Vietnam War Commemoration Commission which is, uh, was created by President Obama. And uh, the first meeting I went to, I was sitting next to Jan Scruggs, the guy who was responsible for the Vietnam Memorial Wall and who had been a soldier in Vietnam, was wounded when he was 19 years old. And so I sat next to him and I you know, I saw his name and recognized him. And he said, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm working on a documentary. And I said, as a matter of fact, there's a story about it. And he was kind of slumming through it while the meeting was going on. And, and he said to me, you, you really have to do this documentary. And I said, well, I intend to. He said, no, 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 it's important. I'll tell you why after the meeting. And after the meeting, he said, this provides a whole different look at Americans in uniform he said you ask about Americans in uniform today those who serve in Vietnam and you don't hear about stuff like this selflessness dedication people risking their own lives to save other people and he said you really have to do it and he said I will volunteer to be your unpaid PR man (laughs) so uh, we, we've been really best of friends since since then, and um, I'm 83 years old now. And I feel that if there's a calling, I have an opportunity now to talk to people who have served in war and to go back and talk to people I met during wars and who are now back home and to interview them about what it was like And how intense it was, and how it has affected their life now. And to do this as a way of telling those Americans who have never been to war zones and showing them, you know, what war is really like, and how once you're in a war and have fought in a war, your life has changed forever. So, you know, I think a lot of reporters are like that. And yes, I get very distressed when I hear people talk about fake news and all that. Um, There are good and bad people in every profession, even in politics. And I think that all of the guys I met, and all of them, had only one who were reporters, correspondents, newspaper guys as well. They only had one job in the forefront of their minds, and that was going out and getting a story and telling the truth, what they saw, what they felt, what the people they interviewed uh, saw and and felt. And you know what, something that I've learned, and I originally heard it from the Medal of Honor recipient, Paul Buca, who is not in the documentary, but is a friend. And, uh, we both spoke at a veterans day event in a park in the town where we, where, where we lived. And, um, uh, I intro Paul, and then Paul got up to speak. The parade had just passed by. This was right after the parade. And he said, I heard a lot of people watching the parade shout, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And he said, that's fine. But, in in a way i don't think that does it and he said all we want to hear is you say we love you i mean it was astounding you know a tough smart guy saying that and uh and he he said i i mean that when you see a veteran somebody you know who and you know, he's got medals or she's got medals. Uh, that's all you have to say. And I've thought about that a lot. And I've used that line myself when I've gone up, out and screened the documentary for veterans group. I, I, you know, decided, well, I'm going to talk about love. And uh, sometimes it's something that men don't like to talk about, but it's, it's, uh, it's important. And, uh, one of the colleges I spoke to it was at Florida International University there were uh, many m- many students from a rather large journalism school at the university were were in the audience when I screened the documentary and spoke to reply and I will never forget that They were the best questions I've ever been asked about the documentary the kids were great and one young lady got up and, and, and said how thankful she was that she saw the documentary because her uncle was killed in Vietnam during the war. And she said, nobody in my family talks about it. And I had no idea what he might have done in Vietnam. And she started crying in the midst of all of her, her fellow students and, and, and said, thank you. And I'm not doing that to pat myself on the back, but these stories are important in perpetuity. They really are. So one of the great things about you and Vanderbilt and the other uh, folks there is you're you're creating something that will last forever, and it will not only always be there for educators and authors and historians, but I hope more and more people will learn that it's there so that they can go find out more about their family members. Not necessarily the individual, but to find out what their family members did when they served during that war.
2: There's much more still to come in the third part of my conversation with Morton Dean, including the story of how, as a young radio reporter in Boston, he helped catch a murder suspect. For more information about his American Medevac documentary, you can use the links available on our News Knowledge website. I'm Russ Mason, and for all of us here at the Vanderbilt Television News Archive, we thank you for listening.